Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. My I really like my dermatologist, and I've been seeing him for many years, and one of the things that he says, and I think he likes me too, but one of the things that he'll say, if I point out a little spot on myself, he'll say, that's something, but it's nothing. And he has a whole lot of sayings like that. And he also knows my politics, so over the last couple of years, uh, he'll say, that's something, but it's nothing, like Trump, which makes me laugh at a time when I'm a little bit nervous. You're nervous when your dermatologist is looking at your spots and dots. So from time to time over the years, he will remove things from me. And he always says, I'm going to send this to pathology. If you don't hear from me, that's good news, which is the way that it has always worked. Uh, Until one day uh, late in June, I was uh, coming out of the JCC where I swim laps and I looked at my phone and there was a call from his office. And I knew right away. Uh, I knew absolutely right away because, in fact, he never has called before. And I called, and even the woman who answers the phone sounded sad. And when he got on the phone, he said, yes, I removed two things, one of them from the front of your head, one of them from the side of your head. The one on the side was a melanoma. Um, and so, you know, really kind of that at that point, the ground does shift a little bit under your feet. But they also, they keep you moving. So, I mean, the next day I was back in his office. The day after that, I was in a, a consult with the surgeon who was going to remove the melanoma. But that actual surgery didn't happen for, you know, maybe it took about 10, 12 days before the actual surgery could be scheduled. So during that time, I had to be with my thoughts about all this, and I didn't quite know what to think. So uh, on the 4th of July, I called my friend, Jim Chapdelaine, who has a lot of experience both uh, as a patient uh, with cancer, but also supporting myriad, I think probably at this point, uncountable people uh, with cancer. I mean, there was just no question about who I was going to call. And I turned up on his doorstep uh, a little bit later that morning on the 4th of July. Jim's here right now. I I don't know. Do you remember anything that we said (laughs) or that you said to me that day? I, d- I do. I, I think I remember most the speed at which I said, I'll be here today. Ding dong. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of that, um, which makes sense because the, you're, you're carrying around these words that are charged and filled with a lifetime of preconceptions, and, and they can be terrifying. Right. I mean, 
you have cancer is just like, you know, that's the thing you spend your whole life hoping nobody ever says to you. So you said a number of things to me that day. But one thing I said to you, I remember I said to you was, I feel pretty good about this. The way they explained it to me, they're going to remove it. They're going to make sure they got the right margins. And then they're going to close it once they know they have the right margins. And then I'm going to just go on living my life. And I'm just going to have to be really, really careful from now on. Do you remember what you said back to me? Because it was like I thought about it 500 times since then. I can't remember the exact words. What you said as far as – because I said I'm going to have to be really, really careful. He said, look, you're not going to be a little China doll. Oh, oh, speech to 7B I gave you. That's hard. And that – I thought that was such a great image, you know, a a little China doll, which is incredibly pale and sits in some kind of wood cabinet with a a glass panel on the front of it. And I thought – and I've come back to that really like 500 times since then. Yeah, that's right. I'm not going to be a little China doll. However, there's this huge territory to traverse between being happy-go-lucky and being a China doll, right? We're looking for some place yeah, yeah, in right, the middle right. to live. Yeah, and yeah. But I, mean, I make a point when I talk to people of not prognosticating it when there's a mystery around something or, or – but I don't know how you feel, but I feel good about your situation. But that doesn't really matter, right? <laughs> what matters is how you feel. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had melanoma. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had – I'm like the country buffet of cancers. Mm-hmm. I've had – I think four or five varieties. But the first time I was told, took nine or 10 doctors, and I finally ended up with a German doctor who said this long word to me. And I said, are you telling me I have cancer? He said, yes, I am telling you, you should get your affairs in order. <laughs> I thought, and so my well, question you had to a, him. You had a rare and very dangerous cancer. Yes, yeah. the, one of the rarest and one of the most fatal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remained the longest lived person with mm. metastatic version of that disease. Mm-hmm. It took me 30 years to be in touch with the p- other people who had that disease. Yeah. Now I'm very much in touch. But All right, Go back to your conversation yeah. with him. Yeah. So my conversation with him, uh, my, just like you remember the China doll thing, and, yeah. and it sort of crystallizes, my first question to him was, can you prescribe Valium? <laughs> and he said, yes. I said, would you? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and then we took it. And I went and took a Valium, and I came back, and then I began this sort of path, this winding on this path that we wind. And they're all different, but the words are part of it, right? If it was just, hey, you have this thing here, mm. it wouldn't have the portent that it has. Right. I think right. also on that day, you compared it either to a pinball machine that lights up or maybe to one of those old-fashioned switchboards that you see in movies from the 40s and the 50s right, where right. every single little portal is suddenly right. humming and needing to be plugged into because we are kind of pre-wired to react to this news we hope we never have to react to. Yeah, I think there, you know, the word is so powerful and the words surrounding it are so powerful most of us don't know about it, right? Most mm-hmm. of us don't know how to change a tire until we get a flat tire. Mm-hmm. And we, oh, man, I got to figure where's the jack in this car? Uh, you have to figure out those fundamental things, how to navigate the experience. And then you have to navigate the post experience, which is like, oh, I almost got in a really bad car accident. That was close. And, and a mile down the road, you might get a little shaky and think, oh, my God, that could have been horrible. So, for me, that was like a 10-year 
<laughs> sort of lost years um, because it kept coming back in my case. But yeah. in your case, I've decided it's not going to. The thing that you're saying about it, okay, I wound up with this uh, wonderful surgeon who I really like a lot, but his job was to fix this thing. And I think I told you that day, I said, at the moment, the way that I think about this is not that I have cancer, but I feel like this thing has cancer and it's like renting from me. You know, I have yeah, a yeah. renter on the side of my head that has cancer. But I mean, since then, I mean, I had the surgery and they got the margins. So the final little bit of that was on a Thursday. And I remember waking up on Saturday morning thinking, I don't know how to feel. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know how I feel about this, which is an odd sensation. I haven't had it often in my life. Usually we might feel sad. We might feel terrified. We might feel angry. We might feel happy. But we at least know what we're feeling. And I just felt like I was in this sort of fog that didn't really assign itself to one emotion. I didn't. And I was thinking, what's the next step emotionally for me? And I didn't know the answer. I don't know that the answer just reveals itself right away, right? Mm -hmm. Because I was 22 the first time. So I don't even know what kind of emotional tools I had. Probably not very good. Uh, So I was very one step at a time. At the age that you and I are at now, which is almost the exact same age, we have even more preconceptions. We have a lifetime of preconceptions. So I, I think so for me, it's I've folded it into my routine. Yeah. You know, I don't I don't expect any two people to package this the same way. Right. Because everybody's different. Everybody reacts different. But there is some middle ground that I think almost everybody experiences. And probably you're experiencing the, the sort of emotionally beige place where you land like uh, should I be really happy or should I be am I going to die tomorrow am I how what's going to happen and and it's you know you mark time different ways right you and I have known each other a long time I know your story I know the story that you just told I felt actually a little embarrassed coming to you with a mere melanoma on the side of my head which you were very nice about but I said I realized this seemed like kind of a you know uh, a sprained ankle or something. I, I, well, you know, I always tell people it's not a competitive sport. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not as though like, uh, well, you get to talk to Ted Williams today <laughs> because nobody wants to be Ted Williams right. in this in this world. You you want to be uh, uh, in a place where you're not thinking about this. So, so I, I want to be a yard goat, but not exactly. even somebody getting into a lot of the games. The, whatever the yard goat farm team is, <laughs> you want to be. So, you know, we are almost exactly the same age. um, And I have another friend who's also almost exactly our age, Kevin, uh, who also had cancer years and years ago. And he's another person I turn to. But, you know, one thing that even today as we were setting up this interview and uh, you had mentioned the biopsy and I said to you, maybe should I be giving you support? (laughs) Because all I've done is ask you for support for the last two or three weeks. And I think you said something about you've got a group of people. And I was thinking about that, that, you know, maybe everybody – needs a little team of people to talk to. Yeah, maybe it's like a little club that nobody yeah. wants to be a member of. Yeah. Maybe it's like, uh, I don't know, recovery or something. Like the old grizzled dudes have to kind of, like you can call me at any hour of the night mm-hmm. and, and whatever. So I, I do make a point of talking to, uh, to three to five people a week. Sometimes there are people that are, have had what I had. And sometimes there are friends of mine that like you. And, and I don't even know how much of what I have to say is valuable. Mm-hmm. What's valuable is having a conversation with somebody that's been through something remotely similar and and uh, and it's valuable for me too. It keeps me in touch 
with this. It reminds me not to be uh, cavalier with my time, even though I'm a chronic time waster. But that's what I think about when I'm wasting time. I shouldn't be wasting time because of this. Well, you know, I've been thinking a little bit about that, too, particularly in that peculiar period between the diagnosis and the actual beginning of the procedures. I mean, I'm sure this is an incredibly maudlin and very predictable set of reactions, but I really started enjoying little things like out on the night dog walk, the flashlight hitting the trees in a certain way, thinking, oh, this is just so nice. I think that's <laughs> the right way to do it. Yeah. That's a correct way of, of doing this rather than to run around shrieking and freaking, and uh, which, you know, that happens too, you know. I liked the fact earlier you alluded to the fact that you came up with some imagery. Mm-hmm. And that's I, – I do encourage people. I stumbled on the most horrific <laughs> image that worked for me. And then I shared it with a friend of mine who, who said, if I were, were to think of that, I'd never sleep again. Yeah. So I was, was having trouble sleeping at night before a biopsy or what, what we call scanxiety or scansomnia. So prior to getting scanned, mm-hmm. I'd go through this curve. I could graph the curve. And so the image I came up with was this old, I had a dream about this, this old wrinkled man out in the field wearing sort of a sack cloth shirt and barefoot, but for some reason was really strong. And and when I was sort of terrified, he would have his hands around my neck. And I thought, this is horrible. (laughs) And so I learned to shake off this guy and keep him way, and, and finally I've pushed him way, way over to the side of the field. And, you know, this afternoon I might hear him cough or something right. uh, before the – but mostly he's just over there. He's there if I need him instead of he needing me. I get it. I get you it. Know? I don't. I can see why it's not a perfectly transferable form of guided imagery. I mean, if we're going to write a bestseller about this, give people a wider range of choices besides, <laughs> Maybe so. that, besides that guy. <laughs> yeah. He <laughs> was out, and he was out in the sun for a long time, this guy. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I guess another thing that comes up, and I know because of some other things that you and I – have done that it's on your mind too. So we're now in our early 60s and we're kind of basically into our mid-60s and we've grown up in a pretty secular period of human history. And as we look at all this stuff, there is that kind of, well, so what is life all about? What are we doing here? What has been the purpose of life? And you got to know my friend Nancy Butler a little bit as she was uh, going through the end of her life with ALS, and she just knew she was going to heaven, yeah. you know? And this is just, it, I mean, it didn't make ALS easy. If anything could make it bearable, I think having that kind of faith where you just know what's going to happen next. It's enviable, almost. It's, it sounds like really shallow to say that. Right. I, I remember thinking like, she also took that experience and somehow turned it into this amazing shared thing for other people to where she made other people stronger, even as she was getting weaker. She certainly helped me, mm-hmm. and, and I told her that. You know, I mean, not that there isn't any such thing as a medical social worker, because there is, but I feel like for the most part, that human apparatus isn't really there unless you make it up. I think you're right. I think you're, and I think that's where the sense of community sort of that I'm part of comes in Mm -hmm. is that you're sort of, you know, you're sharing stories, but you're also sharing sort of best practices. Uh, And, and what works for me may not work for you, et cetera. I mean, I hate to say it, but social media has been a game changer. Mm -hmm. It's helped our group fund studies. Uh, I mean, there's less than 300 people a year that get this particular cancer, uh, and the outcome is is pretty grim. So these nine people found each other on Facebook, mm-hmm. you know? 
So, social media is... And only ex- five of them were Russian, <laughs> as it turns out. Um, I mean, social media is extraordinarily good at that. Yeah, I mean, so there is some good in social media. Yeah. yeah. One thing that I have avoided, you cautioned me that day on the 4th of July, and I already knew myself well enough that I'd kind of taken that step, is the internet is not a good place to go looking up your symptoms or first, anything like that's that. That's the first piece of advice we give. No Google <laughs> machine. Right. Stay off the Google machine. And. And I can tell you from personal experience, when I had a um, uh, those modem faxes came out, mm. and you could go, you could search something on about a thousand different search engines. Yeah. So I searched the kind of cancer that I had. Mm. This was in the '90s, angiosarcoma. I put it in, mm. it came up, and a picture came up. But it took an hour and a half for the picture to load. <laughs> so it kept going across, yeah. and I'm trying to figure out what the picture is, and then I realized. Oh, it's a cadaver without eyes. Mm. This is not helpful. Yeah. But I couldn't find another person until 2012 or 13, 2012, wow. I guess. And I was diagnosed in 1976. It was a long stretch of being out in the desert trying to figure out some of these things that people figure out. So let me ask you this. In, in the next segment of the show, we're going to talk to somebody who found a way to address some of her feelings about her breast cancer by kind of charging right at the enemy and making it her own. I think most of us want to run away. I mean, if there's some way I can get distance between myself and the man in the hairy little burlap yeah, yeah, sack yeah. or whatever it is he's wearing, <laughs> I'd, like right, get, I'd like right. to get a good running start right you, now. You do want him over in the, on the side of the field, right. way over there. You know, I suppose there is, I think for 10 years, I was constantly told, you're going to die, you're going to die. Mm-hmm. Um, you start to believe him a little bit, but I, I actually never did buy into it. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't want it. I'm not going to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it took 10 years of wandering and playing in cover bands and, you know, a life of debauchery before I remember on the 10th anniversary where I thought, okay, now it's been 10 years without this. Mm-hmm. And I'm with this girl scuba diving in the Cayman Islands and, and the fogginess and the co- this sort of webby cotton future mm. sort of cleared out a little bit and I married her, mm-hmm. you know? So I felt for the few, first time like I do maybe have a future. Yeah. And that was sort of a moment I go back to a lot. Because you could be affirmative at that moment. I, um. Yeah, I didn't have to live in the moment. I might be able to live in the next Six months, maybe, you know, I could plan that way. Right. You know, I mean, I'm in the very early stages of this, but I, that's very much a part of the journey I feel like I'm on is thinking about, okay, so, uh, you know, the next 20 years are going to be X, Y, Z. And how different is X, Y, and Z from the 20 years I was imagining back right. in May before right, all this right. started? Uh, yeah. And, and part of it is marking time. And then part of it is is allowing yourself to waste time. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't constantly be like, all right, I've wasted three minutes here. <laughs> I need to solve uh, uh, the riddle of whatever it is, you know, Foucault's theorem or right. something. I mean, I was like that anyway before all this started. So, <laughs> I I, I, so you're screwed. I really am kind of screwed. Um, <laughs> You know, our partners in life are often the people who can counteract some of those tendencies. And I'm with somebody who actually does believe in relaxing in a way that isn't, you know, focused on some greater purpose. So um, That's good because my partner doesn't believe in it. (laughs) But I'm a strong advocate of it. (laughs) Well, listen, I want to publicly thank you. I I literally – I've said this privately. I don't particularly have any – 
roadmap for how I would have gotten through some of those days without the conversation. And I still think about the China doll, too. So, you know, you and David Bowie. I was uh, I almost sang. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will forever think of you as my little China doll. Yeah, please don't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, Jim Chaplain has been joining us. You are Thanks known, for having me. You know him from other shows that we've done, a musician, producer, and an advocate for people with rare cancers. Um, we're going to take a little break. We're going to come back. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about my story, but you're also going to meet that person I just mentioned, the person who kind of turned around and charged right at one of her biggest fears. I could escape this feeling with my China girl. I feel a wreck without my little China girl. I hear her heart beating loud as Okay, we're back. I have to tell you a little bit more of my story. It doesn't really feel like much compared to some of the stories that we're hearing on the show today. But anyway, eventually I did have to have surgery on this. I really liked my surgeon. He actually showed an amazing facility for knowing the lyrics of top 40 music. So like I'm awake and he's like singing along with Miley Cyrus and he knows all the words, you know, and then it was all over, except that it wasn't. Uh, there's a way in which you wake up a couple of days after the surgery and you sort of think, well, yeah, it's all over, except that now what do I do? <laughs> like, how about the rest of my life? And that in many respects is what today's show is about. And there are people on this show who have way more experience exploring that question. One of them is sitting with me right now, Laura Belmay, a retired fundraising and development consultant and writer who's written uh, a lot and very powerfully uh, about her experiences uh, and her approach to the whole question of healing after cancer. So first of all, full disclosure, we should say we know each other. We haven't seen each other for many decades, but we knew each other. 40 years, to be exact. So we knew each other 40 years ago. And since then, a lot has happened to you. And that started, I guess, when you were 41 with your first diagnosis? And stuff like yes. That. Uh, when I was 41, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. I had no predisposing factors, no family history. Uh, it was quite shocking. Obviously, I had been a vegetarian since I was 19. I never took the pill at a time when it was easy to get it as aspirin. I also didn't drink. I didn't smoke. So I was really perfectly healthy. So to be diagnosed with breast cancer at 41, to say the least, was a shocking and life-changing event for me. Uh, it was recommended that I do radiation, and I had to have 16 lymph nodes removed from under my arm about three weeks after my diagnosis. So it was major surgery. I had to leave my job, and then I tried to live a different sort of life. And then five years or so later, it comes back, and, and this time it comes back with a vengeance, as it were. Yes, so I was re-diagnosed when I was uh, 45 years old, and I think until the second diagnosis, I wasn't really sure that the full diagnosis had its impact. I must have been in denial, or I just couldn't think that it was such a big deal that I had breast cancer at 41. So. I pretty much went on living as if I didn't. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And then the second time when your doctor calls and said, 
uh, Laura, it's not good. And in three weeks, you need to have your breast removed. And needless to say, this is a shock on your system. It's a shock on your marriage. And it's a shock on your future. And I really didn't know who to talk to, where to go. I was lucky enough to have quite an enlightened therapist who guided me to um, meet some people who might have alternative ways of dealing with my diagnosis. And so I sought those people out. Um, the bottom line was I did have to have my breast removed. I had nearly a year of chemotherapy. But what I realized was that a perfectly healthy woman who gets breast cancer without doing anything that would cause her to do that, there might be a deeper issue at work. Mm. And so because of some of the things that had happened to me in my past, I began to understand that I may not be cured of cancer, but I could heal my life. And what that meant for me was I had to go back and heal some of the silences that I really believed caused my immune system to become so depressed that I would get breast cancer. I had a wonderful surgeon um, who has since retired. His name was Schuster Christie. And I told him that I would allow him to take my breast if he agreed to two things. And the first was that he would be the only person to touch me during surgery. And he said, I can't even have an intern cut the thread. I said, absolutely not. So he agreed to that. And the other thing I said was, I want you to imagine that with your thread, when you stitch me up, you stitch in prayers for my healing. And he agreed, and I trusted him. That was one of the things that helped me moving forward, that I could really say what I needed and choose the people on my medical team and my healing team who understood that this is a collaboration. It's not just me doing what I'm told. Well, I mean, I think this is the point that you've made as we've been corresponding uh, about this, that asking for healing, it's just not a one-way street. And so when you, when you form a team of collaborators, you're really giving them opportunities to learn, to teach, and maybe to heal themselves. You know, um, there was a very important event that happened the night before my breast cancer surgery. And uh, I live in a very magnanimous and generous community. And one of the women I knew, who was my neighbor, gathered a whole bunch of people together at the Collinsville Yoga Center for a healing circle. And all I was told to do was show up. And I would say 50 people showed up in this yoga center there were candles everywhere. There was a massage table in the middle of the room. I was asked to just lay on the table. I would say half of the people in the room were strangers, men and women. Someone led the, I, I wouldn't call it a ritual, just led the evening and basically said, Laura's having surgery tomorrow and we're inviting people from the community to come up and offer whatever they can to her. There were 50 people there, so apparently I was filling a need for them also. And after an hour, the final person came up, a woman whose name I don't know. I couldn't tell you what she looked like. She put her hand right on my heart, and she said, Laura, when your breast is removed, your heart will be closer to the world. And I had no idea what she meant, but she was absolutely right. 
and the good news and the bad news was my heart did become closer to the world, and sometimes the pain of that was unbearable for me. Mm. It was too hard. And the loss of my breast and my subsequent loss of my consulting business and the increasing pressures on my marriage, which I also eventually lost. I learned later on that about 40% of women who have breast cancer end up in divorce. The, the This laying on of hands and, and the other things that happened at the Collinsville Yoga Center, it happened the night before the day of your surgery. Did the experience at the yoga center alter your state of mind? It altered my state of mind into a state of mind that never changed back to a fearful one. Mm. I, any fear that I had about death and dying was gone. And I think what replaced it for me and really keeps me going today, almost 18 years after my second diagnosis, is the fact that I understood then that cure was for the body, but healing was for my soul. And whether I died or not was a crapshoot, but I could heal my life. Now, this is all happening in 2001, uh, while you're in the middle of a, a chemotherapy stretch that I think went from April to November of 2001. You went to Zimbabwe. First of all, why did you do that? Why did I do that? <laughs> I know. How insane can a person get? Um, one of the women that had been contacted by my therapist, her name was Dina Metzger, and as a fundraising consultant, part of keeping my credential was to do pro bono work. So I agreed to help Dina raise money for a nonprofit in Zimbabwe called the Nanga Project. And Nanga is the Shona word for healer. When Dina found out I had the recurrence of breast cancer, I obviously couldn't go with the fundraising group. But she said, you must come to Zimbabwe with us. I want you to meet this indigenous healer, Augustine Kandemwa. He can heal your cancer. So I'm thinking, I'm going to die anyway. I'm really sick. I have no hair. I've lost 25 pounds. My consulting business, my husband is sick of me. I think I'll go to Zimbabwe. I'd never been out of the country before. I didn't even have a passport. I had no money to go. My friends raised the money for me to go, and I went. And I did things I, I don't even think I can talk about on the radio, but suffice it to say, I was immersed in a 17-day healing process that changed everything. And while I was there, the Twin Towers were bombed. And so I came back to a world that was also devastated. And in the debris of all of that, I really got so depressed. I, I just couldn't bear it. The losses in the Twin Towers disaster mirroring my own. I ended up in the hospital with, you know, clinical depression. I want you to tell one more story. Um, okay. And, and that's um, maybe a year or so later, I think. So you've had your breast removed um, and... Uh, you've been through uh, a punishing chemotherapy and the trip to Zimbabwe and 9-11 along with it, and you wind up at an art class. Tell <laughs> us the story. I had a neighbor whose husband was head of the art department at the University of Hartford, and she seen me sort of languishing in my life, and um, she said, Laura, I have an idea. I think you should be a model 
for one of the art classes at the University of Hartford. And of course, as a you know Irish Catholic girl who was <laughs> very modest, I thought, she's insane. I can't do that. And maybe this was the little Catholic girl in me. I had to offer up my suffering and make use of it in other ways that had nothing to do with me. Mm-hmm. And so I did. I met the teacher, Stephen Brown, and I met several classes of men and women I sat myself in this chair. I wasn't strong enough to uh, stand like most models did. And I dropped my clothing. And I have to tell you, Colin, as a survivor of rape and other traumas, I was always terrified to be exposed and vulnerable because it was a time when I would get hurt. And Even though I was naked in front of 17 men and women, I felt holy because they saw more than this wound on my chest. 16 of them never even painted a scar. They were respectful and kind. They witnessed me in a way that I had never been seen, you know, before. Shortly thereafter, the professor, Stephen Brown, offered to paint me, and that painting ended up being in a show at the Forum Gallery in New York City in 2004 and later found a home at the Springfield Museum of Fine Art in their permanent collections. So, Laura, people are listening to this story, and some of the people listening to you talk have maybe already had a cancer diagnosis. Somebody who's listening is maybe a week, a month, a year away from a cancer diagnosis. And so all these stories are very unique to you, very specific to you. But there are things that I think that you've learned from all this that can be generalized. I mean, if you were talking to somebody who just had a diagnosis, what can you tell them to do? Well, in the beginning, I heard a lot of statistics about my, you know, morbidity and double-blind studies and survival rates for a woman my age and blah, blah, blah. No one ever considered that this might be a soulful experience, meaning illness could be a messenger of healing for me, for other people. And for me, that meant I ended up having therapy with both my parents, a gift that continues to give me solace even though they have both passed. I heard it once said that forgiveness is a gift you give someone who owes you a debt they cannot pay. And so I also had to forgive myself in the unrelenting way. I was not kind to myself. If you just go to war with your cancer cells, you're going you're gonna to make it. No, I had to put my arm around those little cancer cells and say, come on, we have to have milk and cookies and let's have a chat because you're out of control. <laughs> so um, <laughs> simplistically speaking, I had, to, I had to be kind to the whole process and not torment myself with the battleground of the lingo of the cancer subculture. There's an institutionalized way we forget that this is a human being, not a pathology or a diagnosis. Um, This is a lovely segue into what will be our final segment of the show today. We're going to talk to a therapist who specializes uh, in helping people who've been diagnosed and treated for cancer. Uh, We're going to talk about some of these same questions. But Laura Belmay, it has been so nice to visit with you uh, after 40 years. Thank you, my friend. (laughs) And thank you for sharing. 
Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan, with help from me, Kyone Wolf. For more, go to WNPR.org slash Colin. Now, back to Colin. So I should have said this in, in the previous segment, but I kind of believe in signs, and I kind of believe in listening to and noticing when you feel called in a certain way or if the somebody, the universe, is trying to tell you something. I mean, I believe that most of the time, and then during a phase like this, I think we're we're sensitized to it even more. So just to knit the two previous segments together, on the day that I went over to see Jim Chapdelaine was also a day when, out of the blue, after 40 years, I received an email from Laura Bellmay. So I did feel like a sign or like someone was trying to get my attention. I was also very aware of the fact that for reasons that I think have been become clear here, in my own case, I didn't really know what the next steps were. I mean, there's nothing left to do to me medically after they cut the thing out. There's nothing to do. But there was so much that it felt not complete. And so you may also know, if you listen to the show, I, we have a longstanding relationship with Wisdom House. So I'm picking up my Wisdom House brochure. And there's somebody who's giving a talk in the future in the brochure about uh, healing the mind and soul after cancer. Uh, her name is Eileen Manella. She's here now. She's a, a psychotherapist who does specialize in exactly this kind of thing and ha- has worked extensively in places like, well, Memorial Sloan Kettering uh, Cancer Center for 15 years. Uh, she has a private practice in Litchfield, full disclosure. I went there a day ago and became her patient. But I also wanted her to come here because, you know, medical science is really good at figuring out the latest, newest, best way Mm -hmm. to cut out your sickness, to treat your sickness, but not so much all this other stuff. Maybe you can just say a little bit about Mm -hmm. that. Well, first of all, Colin, thanks for having me on. Yes, what we have learned over the years is that although Mm -hmm. part of your treatment may be over, the surgery may be over, the chemo may be over, the radiation may be over, Another part is just beginning. And we in mental health refer to that as the emotional healing journey, the mm-hmm. spiritual healing journey. And I am happy to say that I have seen more and more attention be focused on that aspect of treatment, that it's not just about the physical healing. But on the other hand, when I was diagnosed, my dermatologist said, okay, so you're going to go see this guy. He's a surgeon. He's going to take it from there. But nobody said, also, you're going to need to go see Eileen Manella because mm-hmm. you're going to be a mess afterwards. Nobody told me to right. do that. But Exactly. And that is unfortunate. Mm-hmm. And um, that's one of the things that we learned when I was working at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center is that well-meaning friends and family members might be saying, oh, look at you. You look great. Thank God they got it all. Mm. Your margins are clean. And although all of that may be true, people were experiencing, after they had the time to hit the pause button and process what had happened to them, loneliness, Mm. sadness, anxiety, fear, anger. I I think... You know, Laura was was saying that there's kind of a language that's become very fashionable that that maybe works for a bunch of people, but it's mm-hmm. it's the, almost the language of a battleground, and we're going to beat mm-hmm. this thing, and we're exactly. at war with this thing, and you're going to vanquish this thing, and that's great right. for some people, but mm-hmm. it's not. We don't all work that way, right? Mm-hmm. I'd say most of us don't work that way, yeah. and I certainly feel that Facebook and social media doesn't help the cause of people who are post treatment because there is a lot of you know I'm going to beat this thing. And and while, you know, I certainly can make 
space for that, you know, wanting to beat the crap out of cancer Mm -hmm. and wanting to move on, you also have to respect the process and you have to respect your emotions, your vulnerability. Uh, We often say that the post-treatment course can mimic the grieving process. Mm-hmm. You know, that something after cancer diagnosis and treatment, something has been lost, something has been changed, and things are different. Mm-hmm. And life typically doesn't go back to the way things were. Um, yeah. That doesn't mean that life can't be really, really good again. Yeah. But we like to refer to post-treatment as the new normal. Mm-hmm and where people tend to rebalance and reprioritize. I have a lot of uh, very supportive friends uh, mm-hmm. and supportive people in my life. Some of them, I think, have made it clear that they're available to talk to about this. And some of them, other ones, I can tell that they would probably rather, I would, buy, by the way, be in this latter category. Mm-hmm. I'm really not, prior to having a diagnosis, I wasn't really interested in talking about cancer any more than I had to. When, when you see somebody for the first time, what do you want to know? Um, You know, basically, when people first come to see me, I just want to know how they are in that moment, Mm -hmm. what it was like for them to come into my office. Because asking for help, you know, is not always the easiest thing. Mm -hmm. I want to know how people are doing, how they're feeling. I want to hear about the things that they sometimes don't want to tell their friends or their spouses because they're protecting them. I want to know about their sadness. I want to know about their disappointment. I want to know about their fear. I want to know about their vulnerability. And I also want to hear about, you know, what gets them through the day. Mm -hmm. What I also want to know from people is what messages did they get from their family of origin Mm -hmm. about illness, about vulnerability, about asking for what they need? Mm -hmm. That's huge. And one of the other things I find also about clients who come to see me is it's not just about the cancer. Cancer can open up many other previous wounds, um, unresolved issues of grief, and many questions. Questions. I have people who come in and question their faith. Mm-hmm. Once you open the closet door, exactly. you got to go all the way in the closet it's and see what's there. It's not just about the cancer. Yeah. I mean, a good deal of it is about the cancer. You know. um, what I also find is that when people are initially going through treatment, they need every ounce of energy to get through the treatment. So that's typically not when I see them. When people call me, is typically when the doctor says, okay, you're good to go. I'll see you in six months. I'll see you in a year. Mm-hmm. That's when they hit the pause button. And that's when they have, they have the time and the energy to reflect on what the heck has just happened. What the hell just happened? What did I do? A lot of, you know, often blame, which I... Um, you know, I really work with people that, that there is no place for blame in mm-hmm. this process. Yeah, I am prepared to say that I came into your office yesterday with blame and shame in my soul. And I, I once I sort of talked about it, I thought, this is absurd <laughs> that I was blaming myself or having shame. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not scientifically absurd, but it's just absurd that, uh, you know, with everything I'm going through, uh, I would be doing this to myself. I mean, it's the basic notice, notion of therapy, I guess, until you say it, uh, you don't realize how completely insane it is. Um, you know, it's odd. I th- I'm sure you hear this a lot from people, too, which is uh, I think the other struggle that I've seen even in a short period of time is finding the person to be. And what I mean by that, too, is it's sometimes little details. Like my, my eye is watering right now, not because I'm emotional, but because I have so much sunblock on my face mm-hmm. uh, that some of it's gotten into my eye. And I feel as though 
I'm like that guy right now. Like I went out to lunch right around the time of the treatment, and I suddenly realized that I had like long sleeves and long pants and this big floppy hat and sunblock, and Mm -hmm. and I just looked like this very vulnerable, Mm -hmm. sun-averse comic book character version of myself. And I think that's a struggle too. Like how am I going to assert enough of the part of me that used to exist in the other state so I'm just not walking around like this person who had this thing happen to him. Right. Great question, Colin. I need to stress that we bring who we are into any challenge. Mm -hmm. And you are bringing Colin McEnroe into this situation. Mm -hmm. Finding the new normal. You may, as time goes by, find that that doesn't work for you. You Mm -hmm. may find that you feel the most comfortable when you are covered head to toe. Mm -hmm. It's about trying different things and figuring out what works for you. And that may be different for another person who Mm -hmm. has had melanoma. So let me ask you about one last thing, which is that I found you because I get the Wisdom House brochure delivered to my house. Mm -hmm. And I actually had asked around a little bit before that just to see if anybody knew and get some recommendations. But let's say that people don't get the Wisdom House brochure delivered to their house. And how do they find somebody like you who does specialize in, is there a network? Um, Well, personally, I have a website. Mm -hmm. I get a lot of my referrals from word of mouth. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of doctors in the community refer to me. I think we are so fortunate that we live in a information age where there is so much out there. Mm -hmm. NCI, uh, Dana-Farber, Yale has a survivor clinic keep reaching out, keep exploring online. I'm certainly happy to to talk to, to people who would like to see me there. So when I went into your office uh, yesterday, I already was eager to talk about the spiritual piece of this. Mm-hmm. But you must have some patients who aren't, you know, who just don't see that as having any relevance whatsoever. Colin, <laughs> I have seen, yeah. I like to say, I have seen yeah. Um, a range unlike you would believe. Yeah. I mean, I have people who come in just saying, well, how do I feel better? What do I do? Yeah. Without really wanting to go through the process. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's a lot of people who don't have a spiritual path or mm-hmm. there's a lot of people who, through the healing process, develop a spiritual journey. Mm-hmm. I always inquire with people that I'm working with about their spirit life, about mm-hmm. this larger piece. Yeah. yeah, I think it's incredibly important. Important. The other thing I wanted to ask you about is, so uh, I'm completely violating my own confidentiality here, but I'm very I know, com- I've very had com- that thought too. I'm very, but, <laughs> well, I'm doing but, it. But, I'm doing but, it. There you go. Um, so, I, did get, um, I did get consent, right? Yeah, you, okay. I, I am uh, obviously consenting. So I came into your office, and, mm-hmm. and no one who listens to this show regularly would be surprised to find that I just babbled and babbled and babbled. I had all these ideas. I had all these things that I wanted to put out there. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you said to me was that on the one hand, I was saying stuff to you that – it might take another patient a long time to get yeah. to. Something. But the other thing that you said to me was slow down. Yes. Um, so what does that mean? Well, let me just say I was very impressed with your awareness and your psychological mindedness. Mm-hmm. Um, slow down, respect the process. Mm-hmm. I think for so many people that I do see, they come in and they want to be you know, at point Z and mm-hmm. they're really at A, B. Nobody gets up immediately after they've been hit by a tsunami. Mm -hmm. And I get the feeling that a lot of the people that I see want things to be better and they want them to go back to normal and they want want it uh, quickly. Mm -hmm. And what I say to people is slow down. You've got to feel the feelings and you've got to process the feelings. 
Mm. You have to allow for this healing process to take place. Yeah. And so, it, it might have a different timetable than the one you have. Exactly. Because sometimes people don't even realize what it's opening up in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I had a little bit of an inclination to sprint towards mm-hmm. this bodhisattva-like state that I, I would assume <laughs> that I would ultimately reach. And bodhisattvas never sprint, mm-hmm. right? It's, no. It's, no, it's a process. It's a journey. It's a slow journey at times. Well, Eileen Manella, thank you for coming in here and talking to me. The next time we meet, I'll be at your place talking to you. <laughs> uh, and uh, and I, I, w- I want to say once again, Eileen Manella is a psychotherapist who specializes very specifically uh, in some of these kinds of issues that we're talking about here today. And by the way, this is the end of the show. It's an unusual show. I like to think we always do unusual shows, but this is an unusual, unusual show. Uh, And so thanks for listening. I hope it wasn't too scary for you. Uh, And we'll be back tomorrow with a very different show. 